just an announcement before we begin. As you may have heard, CrimeCon, like so many other events at this time, has been postponed. But not to worry, there will still be a CrimeCon in 2020. The date has been changed from May 1st to October 30th. It will still be held in Orlando, Florida, and Once Upon a Crime will still be featured on Podcast Row. I'm so excited to see you all, and because we have extra time, we're planning to have some extra special gifts and surprises for you when you come out to see us. You can still purchase your tickets at CrimeCon.com, and the offer code ONCEUPON2020 is still good for 10% off your registration. I've included a link in the show notes. This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. Step parents have always gotten a bad rap. From early fairy tales, we heard stories of evil stepmothers who hated and tried to do away with their spouse's children. Of course, we're all familiar with the abuse and neglect Cinderella suffered at the hands of an evil stepmother, or how Hansel and Gretel were sent into the woods by their stepmother to perish, with the complicity of their father. Stepfathers are more rarely portrayed as villains, although, of course, there are bad stepfather stories as well. Perhaps stepmothers are singled out because mothers, and females in general, have traditionally been seen as the primary caregiver and the one who's supposed to be the most nurturing and loving person in the family. Of course, there are many step-parents that love their stepkids, but the stories I'll share with you this month are the exceptions. In our new series, Step Monsters, I'll share stories of bad step-parents whose actions became true crime news. I'll ease you in with this first case of a young boy who went missing and was found in a very unlikely place. Was he the victim of abuse, as he would claim? And if so, who was the person most responsible? His stepmother, his own father, or both parents? This is Chapter 1 of Step Monsters, The Disappearance of Charlie Bothell. Charles Bothell IV's son was missing. 12-year-old Charles V, who was called Charlie, and I'll refer to him by his nickname so as not to confuse the listener, had been living with his father and stepmother, Monique Dillard Bothell, in his father's Detroit condo. Also living in the home were his younger half-siblings, ages 4 and 10 months. Charles Bothell reported that his son had been working out in the family's home gym on June 14th and went to the bathroom at about 9 p.m. He never returned. Officers searched the home and surrounding area for the 12-year-old, but came up empty. Pictures of the handsome little boy with the big bright smile, dressed in a pinstripe suit and tie, flashed on news programs and were plastered around Detroit. Where was little Charlie? How could he have gone missing from his own home? Had he left the building without his parents' knowledge? The Bothells lived in a relatively safe upper-middle-class neighborhood located just outside the boundaries of downtown Detroit. There were parks and green spaces close by where children and teens met up for pickup basketball games or to play with friends. But Charlie reportedly had vanished without a word to his father or his stepmother, Monique. At first, the police wondered if perhaps he hadn't run away. Had there been any problems at home between Bothell and his son? No, Charles responded, 
The boy could sometimes be a handful, but lately he'd been doing very well. He said his son needed structure, and he provided that for him. Bothell said he'd seen an improvement in his son since Charlie began living with him and his wife in 2011. Charlie's mother, Africa Shipping, resided nearby, but she'd had trouble handling her son's behavior, which was the reason she sent Charlie to live with him, Bothell said. Officers widened the search, and when Charlie wasn't found after almost a week, the FBI and state officers were called in to assist. Both Charles Bothell and his ex-wife Africa Shipping pleaded on television for their son's safe return. The police soon turned their attention to the last people in contact with the missing boy, his father and stepmother. After interviewing them both extensively, they asked them both to take a polygraph test. Charles declined to take one that would be administered by the police department's polygrapher. He didn't like the way detectives were implying that he was involved in his son's disappearance. When the FBI's expert offered to administer the test, Bothell agreed, but it came out inconclusive. Charlie's stepmother, Monique Dillard Bothell, also declined to take a polygraph test. She was not administered one by the FBI. As the investigation continued, detectives searched texts made between Bothell and Monique in the hours before Charlie went missing. They communicated with each other several times, discussing the boy's daily exercise routine, which seemed to be very important to his father. In the text, Monique reported that Charlie had not been completing the workouts his father had set for him as part of his daily schedule. Charles's answers suggested he was angry and at the end of his rope with his son. Threatening to ship him off in what would later be clarified as a military boarding school, Charles writes, He, meaning Charlie, lacks the discipline and core character to become a doctor, nurse, scientist, period. Maybe time and continued effort might help, but I have no reason to be hopeful at this point. Let's get this money and get him gone, end quote. Charles would later explain the text, saying he was desperate to get his son on the right track and was referring to getting money to send Charlie to boarding school. Then on June 25th, 11 days after his son had gone missing, Charles Bothell would receive information regarding the whereabouts of Charlie, live on national television. The story about the 12-year-old boy who'd vanished from his Detroit condominium made the national news. On June 25th, Charles Bothell was asked to be interviewed for a live feed on the television program Nancy Grace. Nancy Grace, a former prosecutor in Atlanta, Georgia, had become a legal analyst and television journalist with a show that had been reporting on crimes and court cases since 2005. She had a confrontational style that brought in viewers, but often made her legal opinions controversial. Nancy Grace had been sharing news about the missing boy on her program since soon after he'd gone missing, and Bothell was invited on to give an update on the case. While Bothell was in the middle of answering a question, Grace interrupted him and announced that his son had just been found. Police officers had been conducting another search of Bothell's building while they were on the air. When the officers reached the basement, they discovered Charlie alive in a small storage room. Bothell sat completely silent for a few beats and then started breathing harder and put his hand to his chest. The father of the missing 12-year-old boy, Charlie, uh, with me is his father, Charlie Bothell. Charlie, we're getting reports that your son has been found in your basement. Sir, 
sir. Mr. Bothell, are you? Are what? You, yeah, we are getting reports that your son has been found alive in your basement. What? Yes, that's what, if, if you could hand me that wire very quickly. Yeah, we're getting that right now from, from, yeah, how, how could your son be alive in your basement? Uh, 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 oh, shit. Uh, I, I have, I have no idea. Grace continued to question Bothell, asking how it was possible he didn't know his son had apparently been hiding in the basement of his own building for 11 days. It was clear that she didn't believe that the man was surprised at hearing this news and implied that he was involved in his son's so-called disappearance. Bothell spoke with the media immediately afterward and adamantly denied knowing where his son had been. Quote, for anybody to imply that I somehow knew my son was in the basement is absurd, he stated to reporters who'd converged outside his home. I thought my son was dead, he cried, his voice cracking. He then threw himself on the stunned reporter, hugging him tightly and crying into his shoulder. People weren't sure what to make of this story. Some immediately suspected Charlie's father and stepmother as being involved. Others had already pegged Charles as the culprit and believed his son was most likely dead. Now that the boy had been found alive, they wondered if he hadn't simply run away after all. More questions needed to be answered, and everyone wanted to hear from little Charlie. The afternoon that Bothell was being interviewed on television, Michigan State Police were conducting a thorough search of the Bothell's condominium building located on Nicolette Place. Detective Sergeant Kenneth Drucker was in the building's basement with his partner and were checking out a small storage closet. Drucker would later testify that he wasn't specifically searching for the boy at that time, but thought perhaps there were clues that might have been overlooked in previous searches of the building. He would also say that he wasn't certain the basement closets had ever been searched before, but he doubted it. They were mostly small, crowded rooms full of tenants' stored possessions like furniture, boxes, and other items. The room he entered was no different. Items were packed into the small space, making very little space to walk around. Drucker shined his flashlight on a blanket on the floor. His partner had noticed it too and saw what looked like food left behind nearby. Drucker's flashlight beam illuminated the side of a 55-gallon barrel in the middle of the room. Next to it were stacked up boxes on either side. Sergeant Drucker noticed movement behind the barrel. He called out, identifying himself, and ordered the person to show themselves. Charlie stood up, and Drucker immediately recognized him as the missing boy. Are you all right? he asked Charlie. Charlie answered that he was okay and walked up to the officer. He gave Charlie a big hug, relieved to have found him alive. Charlie was wearing a t-shirt, pajama pants, and socks when he was found. There were Gatorade bottles, protein bars, and what appeared to be chicken bones found on the blanket. Charlie appeared to be thinner than when he was last seen. He said he was hungry. He was given a bottle of water and food from McDonald's. Charlie was taken to a hospital for observation. 
His mother was informed that her son was alive, and she rushed to the hospital to be by his side. Charlie had only one question for the sergeant as he was being transported to the hospital. Is my father home? he asked. The officer told him he wasn't. Good, Charlie replied. At the hospital, Charlie was reported to be very thin, and marks and bruises were found on his upper body. Suspicion immediately fell on his father and stepmother, as it was their basement where the boy had been found. How had he gotten inside? Who had brought him food? And why hadn't he called out for help during the previous searches? Neighbors were convinced that the boy had run away and hid in the basement. It was discovered that Charlie had run away once when he was 11. He was found three hours later and returned home. Some neighbors reported seeing Charlie playing basketball in the neighborhood during the time he was reportedly missing, but detectives found these sources not credible. Others noted that there was a door leading out from the basement to the street that was normally locked, but the week Charlie was reported missing, it had been left unlocked. Charlie could have easily come and gone undetected, they said. They also told reporters that a restroom was located in the basement just a few feet down the hallway from where Charlie was found. In other words, it would have been an ideal hiding spot for a little boy who didn't want to be found. But they had not yet heard from Charlie, and when he began to describe his life with his father and stepmother, it was one of punishment, abuse, and neglect. In November of 2011, Charlie came to live with his father, Charles Bothell IV, and his stepmother, Monique Dillard Bothell, in the Lafayette Park neighborhood of Detroit. Charlie was in the fifth grade at the time, and he attended public school for only about a month near his new home, before his father pulled him out and began homeschooling him in December of 2011. The entire curriculum Bothell provided for his son consisted of two elementary English and science textbooks. Charles provided the instruction for his son himself. When Charlie returned to public school, enrolling for his seventh grade year in September 2014, he had trouble keeping up with the other students. Some things I wasn't taught or just didn't know, Charlie later testified in court. His father became angry at his son when he performed poorly in school. His answer was always discipline in the form of punishment, Charlie said. Charlie had been sleeping in the den since he moved into his father's home, but part of his punishment was to have Charlie begin sleeping on the couch in the living room. That's where I slept from then on, Charlie told the court. Charlie said he was unhappy living with his father, and in 2012, tried running away. He wandered the streets for three hours before he was found by police and brought home. After the officers left, he said, his father made him lie across the dining room table. He first hit him with a wooden stick, but then hit him with a piece of PVC pipe. After that, any whooping I had was done with the PVC pipe, Charlie said. He was hit all over with the pipe, he testified, including his sides, behind his feet, and his head. He described the skin on his backside splitting open from the blows. Sometimes his father would make him roll over to be hit in other areas of his body. As for his stepmother, she went along with the punishments and the discipline his father ordered, Charlie said. When her husband wasn't home, she made sure Charlie followed his father's instructions to the letter. 
One regimen Charlie was ordered to perform was daily workout routines. Charlie described these workouts as beginning at 5 a.m. He was first required to drink a protein shake and then start his workout, which could last for up to four hours. He was made to complete 100 push-ups, 200 sit-ups, 100 jumping jacks, and work out with a 25-pound weight. He was also required to complete 5,000 revolutions on an elliptical machine. If he didn't complete his workout, he would be punished. His stepmother reported any variation or incompletion of this workout to his father, who would beat him with the PVC pipe, Charlie claimed. His stepmother sometimes joined in and beat him too. She would punch me, and one time I got choked, he said. Charlie said he begged them to stop and promised to, quote, do better, unquote. He said his father threatened to send him to military school in Utah or Haiti. His stepmother terrified him by telling Charlie, quote, she could kill me and nobody would know since I was homeschooled, unquote. Charlie was not allowed outside without his stepmother, and he rarely left the house. Sometimes he went with her to the grocery store or to drop off his half-brother at school, but he was unable to socialize with other kids, so he had no friends. On June 14, 2014, Charlie did not complete his workout, and his stepmother took it upon herself to punish him. Monique Bothell took her 12-year-old stepson to the basement of their building, according to a court filing. There he was placed behind boxes and other items and told to, quote, not come out no matter what you hear, unquote. He testified that he was afraid to come out and didn't know if his father was aware that he was in the basement, although he believed that he probably knew. No one brought him food, and he admitted that he snuck upstairs and took food when he knew no one would be home. He used the toilet that was located in the basement bathroom. He was not locked in the basement room, but feared what would happen to him if he disobeyed and was discovered to have left the room. Did Charles know where his son was for the entire 11 days he was left in the basement? It's unclear, but it seems the boy was left there alone and not checked on or provided with food or water. Someone reported him missing to police. This is why I suspect it's possible that at first, Bothell didn't know his wife had put his son in the basement. It wasn't a punishment he'd been given before, so it wasn't authorized by her husband. Bothell's text to his wife only threatened sending him away to boarding school, not locking him up. Charlie had already tried to run away once and was brought home by police. Afterward, he was physically punished by his father, with the beatings becoming worse from that day forward. It then makes sense that when he heard the police searching for him, he would remain silent. Charlie believed that, rather than helping him, bringing police into the situation would only make matters worse. Add to that his stepmother's command not to come out of the basement room no matter what he heard, and the child became a virtual prisoner. She said if I heard anything just to shut up and be quiet, Charlie later testified. I didn't know what was going to happen to me if I didn't listen. I had been threatened before that she would kill me. After hearing the boy's claims, police returned to the Bothell residence. They found blood in the boy's room and questioned Charles about beating his son. According to police reports, Charles Bothell admitted to striking his son with a piece of PVC pipe. Charles and Monique Bothell were arrested and charged with child abuse and torture. Charlie was put into the custody of his biological mother, Africa Shipping. The Bothell's other two children were removed from their home by Child Protective Services 
until the police investigation into the child abuse charges was completed. Monique Bothell was on probation at that time for a previous arrest on a gun charge. She had pled guilty to purchasing a gun without a permit and placed on two years probation. She was taken into custody on the warrant and later released on $5,000 bond and ordered to wear an ankle monitor. Both she and her husband pled not guilty to the charges of child abuse and torture. In April of 2015, a hearing was held on the charges facing the Bothells. Charlie was called to testify and told the court that he had become so despondent at the prospect of continuing to live with his abusive father and stepmother that he attempted to kill himself in May of 2013. My home was a terrible place, Charlie told the judge. I just wanted to go home to my mom. He saw his mother on scheduled weekends but said he didn't feel comfortable telling her about the abuse. I just didn't think anything would change, Charlie said. This statement rings true to me. Children who are abused over a period of time become hopeless, and many report not asking for help sooner or at all because they've given up believing that the situation will change even if they do speak up. This is a response to feeling completely powerless. In June, the court decided that the Bothells would stand trial on child abuse, but the torture charges were being dismissed for lack of evidence. They could have faced life in prison if convicted of torturing their son. Their defense attorney, Sean Smith, called the child a liar. The whole case was BS to begin with, Smith told reporters. He said Charlie was a, quote, broken boy, unquote, who acted out solely because he wanted to live with his mother. As far as the workouts, Charlie was the one who wanted to lose weight and agreed to follow his father's exercise regimen for this purpose, Smith said. He said there was no way the boy had been in the basement the entire 11 days, although he didn't explain where Charlie was, if not there. The following January, a pretrial hearing was held. Monique Dillard Bothell was offered a deal to plead guilty to a misdemeanor charge and be given no jail time. Her children had been in foster care for 18 months by that time and Charles Bothell said his wife took the plea deal in order to get her children back. Her four-year-old was autistic, and her attorney said he had regressed since being placed in foster care. But Charles said he wanted to go to trial. He adamantly denied he'd ever abused his son and wanted to prove his innocence. He reminded the press that he was a registered nurse. I've taken care of people for years, Bothell said. I'm a former foster parent of three a father of four, and a grandfather of two. I shouldn't have to get up there and admit to something I didn't do. I should be able to fight for justice. I've never committed a crime in my life, he said. However, he must have been advised differently by his attorney. He was facing up to 10 years in prison if found guilty of the charge still facing him, second-degree child abuse. Just days after proclaiming his complete innocence, Bothell pled guilty to a misdemeanor child abuse charge and was given probation. He was also ordered to attend anger management classes and placed on 18 months probation. In addition, a no-contact order was issued. He would no longer be allowed to see or speak to his son, Charlie. Charlie Bothell remained living with his biological mother.
In 2017, Charles Bothell sued Nancy Grace and Time Warner, Inc. He alleged that Grace broadcasted false information about him, the case, and the evidence, and allegations against him on her program while, quote, accusing him of the most heinous possible crime, long-standing torture of his minor child, Charlie Bothell V, unquote. He said in addition to reporting false information about him, she also called him a, quote, garden-variety sadist, unquote, in front of an audience of millions. As a result, Bothell said, he was forced to shut down his business and also lost his job as a registered nurse. He said he had requested Grace issue a retraction of her statements on air, but this was refused. Through her attorneys, Grace countered that the information she shared on her program was consistent with the charges leveled against him by the court and what was available in the public record. As for her characterization of Bothell as a garden-variety sadist, the court ruled that these types of statements made in the media cannot, quote, reasonably be interpreted as stating actual facts about an individual because this provides assurance that the public debate will suffer for lack of imaginative expression or rhetorical hyperbole, which has traditionally added much to the discourse of our nation. Unquote. In other words, Nancy Grace as a media personality is allowed to take certain creative license in the use of colorful phrases. The court dismissed Bothell's lawsuit, I would add, with extreme prejudice. But that would merely be my attempt to take creative license. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I'll be off next week for the holiday, but there are still two more episodes to come this month in the series Step Monsters, and I hope you'll join me then. As a gift to all my listeners during this challenging time, I've made this month's bonus episode on Patreon available to everyone. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to listen. While you're there, you can check out how you can become a patron and for as little as $2 per month, get more bonus episodes, early release ad-free episodes, and more. Thanks. Also, there will be a new episode of Let's Talk About True Crime. On that podcast, I and a guest discuss something new and trending in true crime, and this time we'll be discussing something that's taken true crime fans by storm, the Netflix series Tiger King. That episode drops on April 16th. There's a link in the show notes to subscribe to Let's Talk About True Crime. Join us. It's always a wild ride. Did you know that Once Upon a Crime is also on YouTube? You can subscribe to the show there as well. It's a good place to send a friend who you want to introduce to the show, but maybe isn't quite yet a podcast listener. Just look for Once Upon a Crime podcast on YouTube. There's also a link for the channel in the show notes. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Our copy editor is Crystal Dernan. And original music is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Thanks for listening and telling a friend. Until next time, be good to one another.